the Gospel of Mark, if you'd like to turn there, chapter 1. It's been a little while since we were in this precious book. In fact, it was the last time. Exactly, it was January 5th, 2005. So after a 17-year pause, I think it's certainly time that we revisited this precious book. John, his name is John Mark. He goes by just Mark here, which is his Gentile name uh, to identify with the Gentiles. John is Hebrew and means God is gracious. And certainly God had been to his disciples. Mark was perhaps a very young man uh, when Jesus died on the cross. A very young man, some have suggested perhaps as young as 12 years old. Uh, when Jesus was taken to be crucified. Mark is his Latin name, thus it is Roman. His mother was a strong believer. His father may have been, but his father was in all likelihood a Roman and a wealthy Roman at that. Mark is related to the Roman deity Mars, the god of war, according to their pantheon, uh, leading scholars to believe. His mother was Jewish, his father Roman. Uh, and John Mark could then appreciate both cultures. He wasn't writing just to the Jews. He, he was, felt very comfortable in, in addressing uh, the culture that was around him, that was Gentile in nature. He quotes little from the Hebrew Old Testament because the Jews uh, were very familiar with it, but the Gentiles were not. First mention of John Mark in the Bible is probably an autobiographical section in his own gospel. The other guys loved him too much to mention this particular incident, but it says in Mark 14 and uh, verse 51, Jesus was taken in the Garden of Gethsemane. His disciples were in disarray. And it records this young man uh, who literally ran out of his own clothes. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized the Lord, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Embarrassment prohibited him from putting his name on that one. I wouldn't have mentioned my name either. By the way, I got scared. They grabbed me. I ran away naked. You want to leave those parts out of your testimony, by and large. Uh, wouldn't want my name mentioned in that context for sure. But he was a very young man. And according to tradition, the writings of Mark are the recollections of Peter. As he hung out with Peter a lot on Peter's uh, missionary journeys to various places, uh, Peter calls John Mark his son, his son in the faith, that is, in 1 Peter 5.13. Uh, he was a companion with Peter on, on many of his travels, and, and thus this book becomes essentially the memoirs, the writings, the recollections of Peter under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and then John Mark recording those also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We know that because it says all Scripture is God-breathed. So the Holy Spirit worked in, on, and through these men to pen the letter that we have before us th this morning. It was arranged and shaped by Mark because God moves through personality. He doesn't obliterate your personality and says it's worthless. No, He works in, on, and through you in very distinct and specific ways only you could do. You're special in that regard. There's nobody like you on the planet. Have you noticed that? Thank God. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful blessing, though. I mean, God broke the mold when he made you. 
You're special. You're not an accident. You're not here by accident this morning. You're not a child of God by accident. He loves you. He's got a reason, a plan, and a purpose for your life, just like he did this young man who at age perhaps 12 had no idea what was ahead of him. A lifetime of service. His first appearance in the book of Acts is in connection with his mother who had a house in Jerusalem that served as a meeting place for the early church. That's in Acts chapter 12. When Peter, you'll remember, was released from prison, he went to John Mark's mother's house where the disciples were meeting. Uh, now, it's thought that John Mark wrote this account probably as Peter is awaiting execution in Rome. You'll remember Christians were burned, were burned, were, were blamed for the burning of Rome that happened in the year 64 AD, and Nero, under pressure, said, no, 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 it wasn't me that burned Rome down just because my urban renewal plan wasn't passed by the Senate. It was those Christians. They serve a God of fire, an incendiary God. Our God is a burning fire, a refiner's fire. And so Christians were blamed, and Peter and Paul both lost their lives. And it is believed that John Mark was then uh, with Peter awaiting execution and wrote some of these rec recollections. And I'm sure they had many stories they could have, have put down. The persecution that broke out against the church after 64 AD not only led to the imprisonment and beheading of Paul and the crucifixion of Peter, but it left a mark on the church that was indelible. God had a plan that nobody could see at the time. And nobody likes persecution. But what the campfire was there in Jerusalem. It was the heart of the church. And Jesus had told his disciples upon his departure, you go into the whole world spreading the gospel. Twenty years later, they're still in Jerusalem. And so what God did is he put his foot down in the middle of that campfire and embers of his disciples spread all over the Roman Empire because of persecution. Have you noticed that sometimes God moves you from your comfortable spot? <laughs> to do something that's of his choosing, perhaps not yours, but certainly his. Mark, I remember, had joined uh, Paul and his cousin Barnabas on their first missionary journey uh, in the year 46 A.D., but then he deserted them when the going got hard, apparently, as they came into Pamphylia, uh, and for some reason that is not given to us in Scripture, he bailed went back home. I understand that if perhaps he was a young teenager at the time, can't blame him for being scared to death of the things that, uh, you know, people like Peter and Paul had been facing all of their whole lives. Later, him and, and uh, Paul were, were reconciled to each other. In fact, Paul even says, he's valuable to be in my ministry, uh, and so send him to me. It tells me there's redemption for every one of us. It tells me that as a teenager, we probably didn't said things that were not entirely appropriate ourselves. It doesn't mean that God can't use you. In fact, even as grown-ups, I suspect most of us still make plenty of mistakes. God can still use you. If God was, could only use perfect vessels, None of us would be saved this morning after the departure of his son. There was no hope left, you know. We're all as imperfect as can be. Mark has a consistent emphasis throughout Scripture. He emphasizes Jesus as a servant. You remember Jesus' words. It says, the greatest among you must be the servant of all. 
I praise God in heaven we've got servants in this church. You know, and thank you for your service in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's back in Sunday school, the praise band, cooking weenies and hamburgers uh, yesterday on the grill, uh, setting stuff up, clean up, yeah. Clean up lets you know instantly who the servants are in the church. Because people that don't want to serve, they're gone. And all of a sudden, a couple of hundred people that we had in the backyard are down to about 20. What's that? The division of the sheep and the goats. <laughs> no, 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 not the division. But it is the division of the servants and the non-servants. The non-servants always bail out early. They don't want to be there. They don't want to clean up. They don't want to help. And there's a lot of grunt work that has to be done that 70-year-olds like myself don't easily and readily do. You hike some of that stuff that Bill made and some of the games that we were doing out there. And I'll tell you what, I went home and my hot tub in my backyard never looked so good in my life. My dinner last night, a bottle of ibuprofen. <laughs> but I'm feeling great this morning. That's <laughs> great. Um, I'm saying that for two different reasons, not only to be, you know, to joke with you a little bit, but to seriously say, look for opportunities to be a servant because I'm getting tired. I have associate pastors. I need to be servants. When they're not, I bring it to their attention as quickly as I can. I need many servants in this church. We need servants back in Sunday school, but in a wide variety of areas. There are needs in the praise band. There are, a small church always has a lot of needs. So if you want to put a smile on the face of God, consider being a better servant. I know you've got a servant's heart. If you're saved, you've got the Holy Spirit, and he's going to lead you, as he did John Mark, to be a servant of the church. But you want to be specific, and Lord, where do you want me to serve? How do you want me to serve? Because he uniquely made you. He has a unique ministry for you. But if you bail as quickly as you can when the servants are called upon, you'll never find out what Christ called you to by way of servanthood. So let me encourage you to stick around. Me and Kathy are getting tired. Christy, Rick, we're getting tired, amen? We need help from you young squirts out there. So if you like John Marker 12, we got a place for you in ministry. If you're anything less than 70, we got a place for you in ministry. Uh, so thank you, you so much. Uh, I could point out at the risk of embarrassing you, so I won't do that, but there were so many of you. I mean, can I make eye contact with you? Yeah, servant, servant, servant. Servant, 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 servant. We got servants in the church. Watch their example and follow their example. Don't be a lazy Christian. Okay? Point made. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four gospel records, and not only does he focus in on Jesus as servant, but John Mark is a man of few words. To, to John Mark, it's like, can we just get to Jesus? Can we just skip all the stuff that, that doesn't matter? I mean, Luke is a physician, so he is absolutely dumbfounded by the whole virgin birth thing. Well, John Mark is a young man, says, I don't care about that. Let's just skip, cut to the chase. It's about Jesus. So, and, and Matthew, of course, is an accountant. He's a tax collector, and so he goes into minute detail about things. And John Mark is, is a teenager that's had too much Starbucks this morning. He just, everything moves quick for John. It's here, 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 here. And in fact, the word then immediately is mentioned 47 times in this book. He just jumps from narrative to narrative in a, so fast it, it virtually wears you out. But to John Mark, it's all about, let's stay with the things that are really important. Really important. Virgin birth, oh, it's really cool. The physicians think that's out, outrageous, and, and the accountants think that's great. 
<sighs> Mark, he just wants to get to Jesus as fast as possible. So he begins in verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel, not the end, not the totality of it, the beginning of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Who do you think he's referring to? John the Baptist, exactly. Known for his baptizing people, though they typically didn't refer to him as, as John the Baptist, but because he baptized so many people, it became his legacy. That's who he was. That's what he did. That was his unique calling. And there, quite frankly, is nobody in the Bible like John. He is pointed, he's in your face, he's direct. He, some would say he's coarse, even. Yeah, that's what we need to be. Little, God raised up more John the Baptists, not to offend the world, but to convict the world of sin and unrighteousness and of judgment. We need that spirit of, that was upon John the Baptist to be in us because people are lost. They need Jesus. They're on their way to hell. And, and it's folks like you and I that need to rather pointedly at times show them their need for Christ. Notice it's the beginning of the gospel. The good news is still being written today. It's ongoing. The work of Christ in the world today, it's going on. It'll walk us into eternity and continue on forever. So when you and I accepted Jesus Christ, when you and I accepted the gospel, literally the good news, gospel is an old English term, euangelion is the Greek term, and literally means good news. It's a good story. It is something we can sink our teeth into. The beginning of the good news. You're walking it out day by day. You're enjoying the benefits of your salvation and your walk with Jesus Christ every day. The filling of the Holy Spirit, it's with you every day. The, the privilege of prayer is yours and mine every day. Opening His Word, seeking His face. And we walk into eternity. The best is yet to come. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Because you know what? Your story's not finished either. God is still writing the story of your life one day at a time, through the thick, through the thin, the trials, the, the, the tragedies that, that are a part of all human experience. The, what you have to deal with and bear is unique to you because God made you uniquely. And He is going to use those tests, those trials, those hardships to uniquely make you into that unique man. Am I using that term too much? You. I'm feeling like Kamala Harris here where you get on, uh, you know, the same word and you say it 50 times in the same sentence. But this whole idea of, of unique means God loves you. And because He made you one of, out of 7.7 .7 billion people on the planet today, He has a unique call upon your life. And He will use the difficulties of this life primarily to shape you into that person. So embrace those trials. Don't. Don't blow them off. Don't say, oh, I want to get out of this trial as quickly as possible. Well, how come, you know, life isn't a bouquet of roses and all I've found is the thorns, you know? No, the best is yet to come. When we walk into eternity, the first 30 seconds you're there, you're going to say it was all worth it. Everything I ever went through on earth, every trial, every test, every hardship, every sickness, COVID, whatever else, 
first 30 seconds, you can say it was worth it all. These light and momentary afflictions, Paul says, in, in describing a difficult life on a sinful planet. Slight and momentary afflictions. You know, John Mark has one more thing uh, in common with all preachers. Uh, like myself, I'm, I'm a lot like John Mark. I, I like him, I'm a man of few words. Like all preachers, right? Verse 2, he quotes Isaiah. Quotes Malachi first. I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, make straight the way of the Lord. Quoting Malachi 3, 1, but then Isaiah says, the voice of one calling in the desert. Do you see what a minority John the Baptist is in? You feel like you're the only Christian in your workplace, in your, in your circle of friends? Yeah, how would you like to be the voice of one calling in the desert? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for Him. The, the Old Testament accurately predicted the ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Old Testament really provides context and a foundation for us in the New Testament. I don't think you can have a full appreciation of the New Testament without having some understanding of the Old that looked forward to it, who this God is that we serve and how He has historically revealed Himself to people down through the ages. Read the Old Testament. All Scripture is God-breathed. What does all mean in Greek? I know there are some short-sighted pastors out there that say, well, we don't read the Bible anymore in the Old Testament. You know, we stick with the New Testament. We're New Testament believers, and the Old Testament is irrelevant. It's all about the law. You haven't read enough of the Old Testament. There's a lot of grace, love, mercy, and intervention of God in miraculous and supernatural ways. You skip the Old Testament? How much of your Bible are you skipping? Most of it. You're skipping some really important stuff. You're skipping three quarters of the inspired Word of God if you don't read the Old Testament. That's where my fingers at between old and new. Be sure to read that. It really does provide a, a good foundation. You say, well, it contains principles and, and things and practices I'm, I'm really not, uh, I don't have a good handle on the history of. Buy yourself a, a study Bible. Any study Bible in any of the modern translations will do. My personal favorite is the NIV Study Bible. Got to tell you, I'm not a big fan of the 2011 version, so I use it as a pulpit Bible, uh, the 2004 edition of the NIV, because I've had a lot of dialogue with the translators. And I said, why didn't you leave good enough alone? You know, now they've got to be all gender inclusive and politically correct. And I'm going, pitch that nonsense. You, you just stick with straight translation, and the pastors will help the people make application of it. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, the work that God has planned for you now and in the future. His will is discovered one day at a time. How? As you pray, as you read His Word, as you ask Him to fill you with again that day fresh with His Holy Spirit. The will of God is discovered every single day. And there is going to be, there is going to be an opportunity in that day for you to glorify God. And if you're not prepared... It'll fall between the cracks. 
You've got to be prepared. You want God to use you? Then be prepared. So verse 4 tells us, So John came, John the Baptist, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance. Say repentance. I wanted you to say it because most people don't anymore. I think the church could use a baptism of repentance again. We already know what repentance is. I'm sorry, I sinned. It involves confession of sin and then ownership of that sin. Confession of that sin. Boy, we like to just brush that one aside. Well, can't we call it a faux pas? Can't we say I made a mistake? Why, why does it have to be that word sin? Well, that's easy. I is right in the middle of it. That's ownership, man. Take it. I sin, Heavenly Father. Forgive me my sins. That's how you became a Christian. That's how you stay a vibrant and humble Christian. Confess. But don't stop with just that. Repent. Confess, but repent. Turn away from that. Godly sorrow for sin, a willingness to turn away from it. That's the essence of repentance. It, it requires a, a fundamental change of heart and mind towards sin and towards God. It's a turning from sin and a turning to God. In the New Testament, it appears as a condition of God's forgiveness. This is why repentance is critical because God always forgives when there is repentance. It requires a little humility. Here's, here's the scripture I have to back that point up. Jesus said, unless you repent, you also will perish. That's Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. Jesus brings up the subject again in Luke 17 and verse 4. In the case of a brother who sins against you, Jesus said, if he repents, forgive him. If there's no godly sorrow, if there's no desire to turn from that sin, if there's no ownership of it, no, you don't have to forgive him. There needs to be some repentance. The good news of Jesus Christ is not just, well, bow your head and ask Jesus into your heart and everything will be fine. No, if there is no confession of sin, if there is no repentance of that sin, there is no salvation from that sin. We need to understand that. It's not just, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer. I mean, nothing happened, but, you know, I said the words. Hey, dude, what's the problem? I guess I'm saved. Was there repentance? Was there any contrition? Was there any humility? It's not just accept Jesus in your heart. There must be a change of heart. There must be ownership of our sin. There must be confession of the sin and repentance of that sin. There must be this godly sorrow for sins committed against a holy God. Do you remember John the Baptist's first message? It's recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew. His first message was one word. What was that word? Repent. And he, I, I see John the Baptist, this wild-haired guy living out in the desert with locusts hanging out of his teeth and gnarly, and he's just... He's just, you wonder, did, did you ever escape the 60s? Or is there, do you have like a brain-addled drug issue going on? 
And the way you dress, dude, nobody will let you in their church look, uh, dressing like that. You'd say, well, he had a camel's hair coat on. Isn't that a suit? Camels would itch themselves on the cactus of the Judean desert. And poor people would pick the hair off of the cactuses and weave it together in a garment that resembled remarkably a burlap potato sack. Okay, how would you like to go to church in a burlap potato sack? You think I dress badly? <laughs> uh, what that really said to me is he didn't care about the things of the world. He didn't care what his wardrobe was. He didn't care what people thought of his diet. He, had a, he was a man on a mission. He wanted to please God. And everything else was irrelevant to John. So his message was unvarnished because of the sins of the people were unrepentant. Just let that soak in for a minute. His message was unvarnished because the sins of the people were unrepentant. You have to get pointed with people sometimes. I, that's my kid brother who lives down outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And he said, you know, the big problem down in the south, because I asked him, I said, well, you live in the Bible Belt. It must be a piece of cake. I mean, everybody down there is saved, right? And he said something interesting to me. He said, Jimmy, he said, you have to convince them they're lost before they can be saved. Because in their mindset, they can go out and get drunk and party wild on Saturday, come to church on Sunday, and everything's good. We're just good old boys getting along. Sure, we love the Lord. Pass the bourbon. Unless you repent, you also will perish. When a person changes, there's a holiness that becomes important to them. The things of the world grow less important increasingly with every passing day for the born again child of God. We don't look back on the way that we used to live and say, what a wild party that was, and weren't those the good old days? No, they weren't the good old days. They were days of sin and selfish indulgence and hurting other people and getting hurt and doing things that we now despise about ourselves. And it should lend an element of contrition and humility to all of our prayers. John Newton put it best in his amazing song, Amazing Grace. You had mercy on a wretch like me, he wrote. That is repentance. That is humility. That is, is contrition. And it is so essential that we not lose sight of those facts. It says in verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to see went out to John the Baptist, confessing their sins. Say confessing. It's not just ask Jesus into your heart. There is no forgiveness of sin where there is no confession, where there is no repentance. And yet, today's gospel message has been watered down to the point that, oh, all i got to do is, is walk an aisle, fill out a card, kneel at an altar, and I'm good. Or get baptized, and I'm good to go. Or throw a buck in the plate and earn my way to heaven? Confessing their sins. Then John would baptize them because John knew the same as we know this morning. Without confession of sin, without repentance of sin, there's no salvation. There's no salvation. 
So once they confessed their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair. Now you understand what illustrious wardrobe he had, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. This is not the lotus flower. This is not a locust plant or tree. These are bugs. These are grasshoppers uh, by any other name. If you roast them, they tell me they're edible. I can eat a lot of things. I can, I can eat a lot. I can eat nearly anything. I did finish off every single bowl of chili I had yesterday and lived to tell about it. I ate the hot ones, the cold ones, the ones with sugar, the ones that, that's chili? I didn't know. Who know? What's in that pot? I don't know. Eat it. Don't ask questions. So I ate it, and I didn't ask questions. I, I, I love it. I love eating. One thing I'm not going to eat is bugs. You tell me a bug's edible, good. Eat them. You have fun. Tell me all about it. They still do it in the Middle East. I, no, no, no. There's not enough honey you can dip them in to make that work. At verse 7, and this was his message. Here's the important part. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Wow. I've never heard anything as humble as that. And this is a man who was popular, if you will, enough that thousands of people were coming to him. And he says, one's coming after, don't, don't brag on me, one's coming after me, I'm, I'm not even worthy of untying his sandals. Why can't we be humble like that? Why can't we be godly like that? Why can't we be as separated from the things of the world as he was? Instead, we obsess with things that have no eternal importance whatsoever. That's what I like about John Mark. He just cuts to the chase. And he says, this is the important stuff. You need to listen up. Because he's cutting out all the things that he considers to be less important than the work and person of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist did the same thing after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I feel exactly the same way. Can I tell you something about pastors you may not know? Nobody is harder on a pastor than the pastor. Nobody. I receive criticism for a living. That's what people do. Oh, Pastor, you should have brought this up. Oh, you should have said that. Oh, I didn't like the way you said that, Pastor. Sure stepped on my toes. And, uh, that's not my intent at all. I'm not a great and mighty man. I'm not a great and mighty preacher. There's tens of thousands of preachers out there far better than myself. I don't care. It doesn't matter. Let God's calling be upon their lives, and I hope that millions come to faith in Christ Jesus. But I am a pastor teacher. I am a child of God. I am a man of God, imperfect though I be. I will be the best man of God I can be. And I think that should be the pursuit of every Christian in this room. I just want to please God. I know I'm imperfect. I know I fall short. But I'll tell you what, humility will bring the, the work of God in on and through you faster than anything else I know of. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, James says, and he will lift you up. That's where it starts. You can see furthest on your knees. So get on your knees often. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Pray, seek his face, read his word, 
This is how God has historically, for at least 4,000 years, made strong Christians. We know that we're weaker when we do not do these things. We know that we are stronger than we are. John says, verse 8, I baptize you with water. Literally, I immerse you in water. It's a term that came out of the tent makers of that day and age that would dye leather. You'll remember one of the coverings of Moses' tabernacle in the Old Testament was the hides of animals that had been dyed red. So if you were to dye leather, you would dip the leather piece in there and totally immerse it. That is the word baptize. It doesn't mean sprinkle. It doesn't mean, you know, you flick something on their forehead. It doesn't mean a drop. You know, the picture here is, oh, if we're going to sprinkle, we're going to do it with a 55-gallon bucket. We're going to dump it on your head. That's baptism, you know. Now, if you're in a desert and you don't have a lot of water, okay, sprinkle. You do what you got to do. That's fine. But I'll tell you what, immersion baptism is biblical baptism. You know, in fact, baptism can't save you. We know that. What happens if you get baptized and you're not saved? You just get wet. You just get wet. There's no saving merit to baptism. But it is the first issue of obedience, I believe, after you become a Christian. You want to publicly identify yourself with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we do it that way. Total immersion. People ask me, well, Pastor, how long are you going to hold me under? How much have you sinned? <laughs> some of you need to bring some scuba gear. <laughs> It's not the length of time that we hold you under. It's that public acknowledgement. Jesus died for me. I want to identify myself with his death and burial. Even the old nature back there in the tub, coming back out and walking in newness of life, that was what John was doing. And lives were changed. People repented. They sought the Lord. It was a magnificent revival that was going on preparatory to Jesus' coming. Now people could receive the Word of God. Jesus was the Word of God. John had, had paved the way for him, so to speak. That's the account that we're reading. In verse 9, now we see Jesus beginning his public ministry about the year 27 A.D. when he was 30 years of age, the same age that the Levitical priests in the Old Testament entered the priesthood and they started their ministry. 30 years of age. Jesus, Luke's account tells us he was about 30 years of age when he began his public ministry. Verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. <laughs> like me, see? Born in New York City. New York City. Born in New York City, raised in Colorado. I'm not a native, but... Man, I'm close. I got antifreeze in my veins. Cold weather don't bother me. I love Colorado with all of my heart. But people assumed because he came from Nazareth that that's where he was born. That was a mistake. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It was a Roman outpost in that day and age known as a dirty little kind of backwater town with a kind of an iffy reputation because of the Roman soldiers that were stationed there. And so you'll remember when Nathaniel was told, hey, we have found the Christ. He said, Where, yeah, yeah, Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? I've heard that a lot. 
New York City. You were born in New York. Couldn't anything good come from New York City? Ta-da. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter where you were born. It matters who you know. Jesus was sent by the Father, filled with his Holy Spirit. Who cares where you came from? I had no control over that. <laughs> Jesus was born in the town of David because that was prophetic. He had to be born in the town of David, but he was raised in Nazareth alongside his carpenter father, who apparently passed away early on in age, making Jesus responsible for all of his brothers and sisters as well as the welfare of his mother. That's why he continued on as a carpenter. Blue-collar trade. Back then, you said, well, what did they do as carpenters? You know, build wood frame houses. <laughs> they, they weren't using wood frame construction back then. They built doors. They built utensils, wooden spoons. They built boats for the fishermen. That's why uh, they're on the shores of the Galilee. You know, Nazareth is not far at all. So Jesus, no doubt, built plenty of boats. Maybe he built some of the boats that... Uh, John and his brother were using in the fishing trade. Maybe he had built Peter's boat. I don't know. But there was one other thing that uh, the Romans made Galilean carpenters do and people, carpenters in around Jerusalem. They were forced to manufacture crosses to crucify victims of the Roman Empire on. Can you even imagine the possibility that Jesus made his own cross? That to me is absolutely mind-blowing, though within the realm, not a probability, but a possibility. That's what carpenters did back then. Blue-collar trade that was not highly esteemed and nobody thought well of, of uh, Nazareth, but that's where Jesus had been raised. So Jesus, verse 9 of Nazareth, came up uh, in the Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven open torn open, and the Spirit descending on him in the form of a dove, and a voice then came from heaven, you are my Son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Now, if you don't believe in the Trinity, you will have difficulty explaining this passage. In fact, I, I get called fairly regularly by this guy who is anti-Trinitarian, but never tells me that up front. So, Pastor Jim, I read your beliefs online, and you guys believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You believe in a, in a trinity. And I said, yeah. He said, so you believe in three gods? And I said, no, not three gods. One God expressing himself through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how we interface with him. Jesus had to become a man so he could die on the cross. The Father is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said when he left that he would leave us his Holy Spirit, the comforter, leading us, guiding us, filling us with spiritual gifts and spiritual fruit. I says, but it is one God. Jesus said to his disciples, if you have seen me, Thomas, you have seen the Father. So there is intimacy in this triunity that we refer to as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you're, if you don't, not that anybody understands all that there is regarding the Trinity, three persons in one Godhead, but how do you explain this? The voice of the Father speaking from heaven. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit, sometimes called the Spirit of God, sometimes the Spirit of Jesus. Who's the Spirit of? Yes. 
I, can I explain that? I've heard some silly analogies. God is like an egg. There's the yolk. <laughs> Yolk's on you. There's the yolk. There's the white part, and there's the shell. But it's one egg. That's deep theological truth there. I, no, God's not an egg. I don't think that He's anything like an egg. Well, God is like, you know, the light switch on the wall. You know, the, the light itself is Jesus, and, and the current is the Holy Spirit, and the what, that leaves God to be the light switch, I guess. I, I, all analogies like that to explain the Trinity fall short. This I know. Scripture declares that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they show up at different times, and sometimes, like here, all at the same time. And if you don't believe in a Trinity, how do you explain this? What, Jesus was a ventriloquist? and he faked the voice of his father? Really? If you're willing to go there, you need to re-examine whether you're saved or not. That's just a silly statement. But we do see the father's seal of approval on the ministry of his son. How is that ministry accomplished? The same way yours is, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not you. Israel never won a battle in the Old Testament because they were so sharp at warfare. It says the, that God gave them their victory. Well, that's, God has always given the victory to those that, that look to Him. He's our strength. He's our shield. He's our portion. He's everything that we need to navigate through a difficult life. I love that about God. He cares about us. Jesus said, I will not leave you alone. I'll send my Holy Spirit. He must be divine. It is the Spirit of Jesus inside of me that helps convict me of right and wrong and empowers me to do the right and say no to the wrong and to seek His face, to glorify His name. Over and over and over again, we see the interface between Father and Son and Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. I believe in the Old Testament, we see Jesus in His pre-incarnate appearances as the angel of the Lord. The word T-H-E in Hebrew, like Greek in the New Testament, indicates a singular and unique identity. The word angel in the Old Testament means messenger. Who is the ultimate messenger bringing the message from heaven to earth but Jesus? So I, have, I believe with all of my heart, because in the Old Testament, boy, you look at that old episode with Gideon and Judges, uh, you know, he's talking to the angel of the Lord. He accepts sacrifice, do only God. The angel of the Lord then steps into it and ascends into the sky. This is not just your typical angel. And he speaks on behalf of God sometimes, and there are other scriptures where he speaks as if he is God. And only Jesus could walk in both of those worlds simultaneously. Jesus, we see the man himself put on human flesh at the incarnation and reveal himself in his earthly ministry, but not before he's empowered. That's what this baptism passage is about from verses 9 through 13. God does not want you doing anything for him apart from the empowering of his Holy Spirit. And the reason is, you'll do a face plant. You try to do something for God without the empowering of His Holy Spirit, you're going down. You're going you're gonna to wind up with egg all over your face. Don't do that. Where God guides, God provides. So if He has called you to a specific role and function or 
area of service within the church, make sure that you ask him for the power to do it. The power to be the mechanic that he's called you to be, the computer programmer, the housewife. But ask God for the supernatural power to do that. What did Jesus say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Got to ask. You want power? Ask. You want wisdom? You want knowledge? You want the filling of the Holy Spirit? You've got to ask, but it's yours for the asking. I love it. I love everything about John Mark. He's so brief, just like me. I, moving on, he says in, in verse 14, After John was put in prison, John the Baptist said, As Jesus went into the Galilee, proclaiming the good news, that's gospel, that's what it means, the euangelion in the Greek, the good news. The time has come, he said, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent. John the Baptist's first message was repent. Jesus' first message, repent. Just a, accept me into your heart. Somebody said, there is the necessity of repentance today. And there is no gospel that we can preach that leaves out repentance, the need for repentance. The kingdom of God is near. My heart cries out, come Quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I cannot believe I skipped verse 12. As soon as Jesus was baptized, it's easy for us preachers to get ahead of ourselves. The whole thing is just so exciting to me. Verse 12, and at once, right after his baptism, right after his anointing with the Holy Spirit, what's the Holy Spirit do? Puts him out into the desert into a place of temptation. But he Man, you dare not walk into a desert of temptation without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Satan will steamroller you. You just do not want to do that. So it makes sense to me that as soon as Jesus is baptized, as soon as the Holy Spirit comes upon him, then it says in, in other Gospels, the Holy Spirit drove him out into the desert. There's a time of testing. Word testing in Greek is, is fascinating all by itself. It's a metallurgical term. It means you heat up a metal to the point that it becomes molten and you skim off the impurities at the top. That's what testing is and that's what God's doing in your life. You're heated up in this crucible of life and God is skimming off the impurities because there's room for improvement in each one of us, amen? Then He'll use you for His glory. At once the Holy Spirit, verse 12 says, sent Jesus out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He didn't eat during that whole time. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Luke's got a few more details of the angels that came and ministered to him. But Hebrews asks, asks the question, are not all angels ministering spirits to those who are to inherit salvation? Well, that's you and me. You say, well, you did, are you saying that I've, I have my own personal guardian angel? I'm not saying that. Some of you need far more than one angel. <laughs> but I know this, that all of those angels are ministering on your behalf and mine. And I think that's glorious. We've got the filling of His Holy Spirit. We've got the living Word of God. And then we've got these angels coming back and forth between heaven and earth ministering on our behalf. I mean, how many times have they blunted the enemy's sword when he tried to attack me? 
How many times have they stepped between you and the car in front of you that you were about to rear end? How many times throughout life can you say, man, I came so close? When you walk into heaven someday and some angel's going to nudge you in the river to go, yo, remember that accident? You almost said, yeah, it was me between the two. Thanks. You squished me between me. You mean you and the other car in front of you. You should say, thank you. I'll bet there'll be a lot, angels lined up by the dozens <laughs> on each one of us going, yo, you owe me. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Thank you. Thank you, for God, for your angels. But after John, verse 14, was put into prison, Jesus begins his public ministry because the gospel will never be silenced. Governments have tried throughout the years, uh, throughout the centuries. But if John is put in prison, Jesus begins right where John left off, saying exactly the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And believe the good news. What's the good news? You have sinned. And Jesus is going to pay the price for that sin. That's good news. He's taking your price upon himself and imputing to you and I his righteousness. Boy, what a great swap took place at the cross of Jesus Christ. And I am eternally grateful. Verse 16, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, this is Simon Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come and follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. This isn't the first time they had met with Jesus. John tells us of an earlier meeting in John chapter 1, verse 45. But what this is in Mark's gospel is a call to discipleship. Now leave behind the things of the world. Leave behind your your calling in life, whether you're a computer programmer or ditch digger, dishwasher, or in this case, commercial fisherman, successful commercial fisherman to boot, come and I'll make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. That's the hallmark of a true Christian. They'll walk away from anything to walk with Jesus. They'll walk away from the things of this world and count them of no importance at all to follow their Lord and Master. It is not anything we can take credit for. I, I, I think that it is something that God puts in the human heart. You know, I, I remember when he, he called me uh, into the ministry oh, so many years ago. And uh, people ask me, well, you gave up a career on the Colorado Springs Fire Department to be a pastor? Yeah, but I don't feel like I gave up anything. You gave up a medical career. I was accepted at medical school up in Denver and had finished my pre-med degree. You gave up a medical career to be a pastor. My mom never forgave me that. She said, Oy vey, Jimmy, you could have been a rich doctor instead. You're a pauper, pastor, pauper, pastor, same thing. Mom never, she never forgave me. But, you know, mom, until she became a Christian, just couldn't understand why anybody would give up anything for Jesus. But once you're saved, you don't understand why everybody won't give up everything for Jesus. It's a different perspective that we have now. Verse 19, when he had gone a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. These are also known in other scriptures as the son of Boanerges. You go, what's Boanerges mean? Sons of thunder. These are some guys with some anger management issues. That's what's implied in the very name that, that uh, they were called. Uh, but they're going to be changed. John will become the most loving and gentle guy of, of all 12 of them. It's going to be an amazing transformation. They were there preparing their nets, and without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. He had extra boats. He had extra hired men. It was a wealthy and lucrative business that they all walked away from. 
Peter and Paul have a lot in common regard. Peter walked away from his nets, but Paul walked away from where he was headed in Judeo-Christian circles. He was instructed under the most notable rabbi of his day, by the, a man by the name of Gamaliel. Uh, and, but Paul said, you know, I consider all of those things that were once to my credit rubbish that I might gain Christ Jesus. You know, he had that same transformation. You know, Peter and Nets, yeah, walking away from that to embrace Jesus, walking away from Paul's calling in religious circles of the Jews. Verse 21, when they uh, came to Capernaum, they went to Capernaum. That was the center of the fishing uh, trade on the Galilee, that in Ti Tiberias to the south. Capernaum is on the very north, northwest part of the lake. In fact, uh, Peter's mother's house uh, is still there. And they've, they've uh, Constantine in his time, day and age, about the year 330, um, had it uh, an octagonal uh, structure put around it to preserve the house. And so every place you see an octagonal structure around uh, a Christian place, you always know that the Christianity had its foothold there. Interesting to me, the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem uh, today is, is an octagonal structure. Isn't that interesting? In other words, it belongs to the Jews. Always has, always will. You say, well, you know, didn't, didn't Muhammad have first dibs on that? Muhammad's a Johnny-come-lately. That land was promised to Abraham 2,000 years before Jesus was born. Muhammad, pfft, no. The, the Palestinians have no right to the Temple Mount area whatsoever. Well, how did they come to be in control of the Temple Mount? I'm glad you asked. There, there, there was this general by the name of Moshe Dayan who during the 67 war said, well, and they recaptured the old city of Jerusalem. And, and the whole Christian community was going, come Lord Jesus, we've come back to Jerusalem, the Jews, and we're coming to the Palestine by the, by the droves, and it was an amazing time. But so as to not anger the Arab people, Moshe Dayan said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you guys say, keep control of the Temple Mount area. Only since then has it become a rabid point of division in the Arab world. That's ours. We belong there. We got rights. They didn't feel that way before the Jews recaptured the old city of Jerusalem in 67. What happened to all their prior claims then? Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted it. And it is of no importance to them. They've made up legends uh, surrounding the Dome of the Rock ever since, the rock upon which Muhammad ascended into heaven. Really? He must have fallen back because his tomb is still in the Middle East today. Unlike the tomb of Jesus, which is still empty. Just say, praise the Lord. <laughs> Verse 21, they went to Capernaum. When the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he had taught them as one who had authority. Of course, he's been baptized by the Holy Spirit of God. He's been sent by God the Father. Of course, he's got authority that no man ever had, not as the teachers of the law did. Fascinating to me, the teachers of the law always quoted other teachers. Jesus only quoted God. He never quoted another pastor. He never, he never, all of the cute quotes that you hear from pulpits around America today, well, pastor so-and-so and this guy and this guy, you know, Jesus didn't quote anybody but his heavenly father. Maybe we should rethink what comes out of pulpits these days. 
pulpiteer's job is not to entertain. It's not to impress you with his wide breadth of, of knowledge because he's investigated and quoted so many ancient sources. That makes him puffed up and proud. That if Jesus only quoted his heavenly Father, maybe we should consider doing the same thing. Of all of the books ever written, there is none more important, weighty, or authoritative than the Word of God. Sharper than a two-edged sword, there's no book like it. Praise God in heaven for the Bibles we have in our hands. Not just as teachers, as the law. Verse 23, then a man uh, in there, just then, just then, that's John, just right away, boom, 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 this, this happened next. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by a demon, an unclean spirit is what the original says, an evil spirit, as the NIV translated, cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. You know, that which men were so slow to realize was instantly realized by the devils. They knew that God was real. They knew that Jesus was real. They knew there was a day of accounting coming for them. Have you come to destroy us before our time? Now, isn't it fascinating? This man is in the synagogue. How many demon-possessed people typically go to church? They don't go to churches where the gospel is preached and Jesus Christ is presented as the Lord of the Lord of life that He is. But you can sit in any place called the house of worship, and if the Holy Spirit's not there and the Word of God isn't taught, demons feel at home. You hear that? Lots of churches out there today that are not churches in the biblical sense of the word. They're places where sloppy agape and loosey-goosey law-keeping and uh, is taught and people are entertained. They walk out as unchanged as they walked in. In the church of Jesus Christ, the gospel will be taught. The Lord will be elevated. God is in our midst where two or three are gathered in His name. Just two or more, Jesus said, I'll be right there in the midst of you. So we walk on holy ground. We stand in a holy place because of His presence, not because of the seats or the building. It's just this convenient steel building. We're in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why we should conduct ourselves appropriately. We should take captive every thought, make it obedient to Christ Jesus. But the demon cries out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Isn't it interesting? I wonder how long the demon had been going to church. How come nobody there realized, that guy's got a demon? I mean, what about the leader of the synagogue? I mean, didn't any of these guys have a clue? No, they didn't. They're just religious guys. They're wearing the robes. They got the building. They're looking the part. They just don't have any power. They have no discernment. So they invite demon people, demon-possessed people to church all the time. To them, it doesn't care. They, they don't care. What do you want with us, the demon says, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? That'll happen someday. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Holy One sent by God, the one filled with the Spirit of God, the only begotten Son of God who will die for the sins of mankind. I know who you are. The population was not ready for Jesus to be revealed as its Messiah. So Jesus was constantly telling these demons, shut up, because people had a weird idea of what the Messiah was going to be like when he showed up. They wanted a military deliver to get them out from underneath the heels of Rome, but they were not interested in giving up their sins. Oh, no, 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 no. They had made a Messiah of their own liking, one who's going to give us victory over our foes but requires nothing of us. 
Jesus came to forgive sin. Understand that. He came to pay the price that our sins deserved. He came to impute to every one of those who confess their sins in humility. He imputed to us his own righteousness. So someday we will stand before God, not, not whether you and I are good enough, but whether we're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is always good enough. He's perfect. And that is God's standard. Perfection. Be quiet, verse 25, Jesus re records for us. He said sternly, come out of him. An evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed. Notice Jesus, he didn't sprinkle them with holy water. Did you notice that? There's no scenes from the exorcism here where we got some guy twirling his head around and some week-long practice that goes on and everybody breaks out in a hot sweat. Jesus says, get out, and they're gone. What is that? That's authority. That's authority. Don't be afraid of demons. They're scared to death. You're going to find out how powerful you are in Christ Jesus. They're scared to death of that. When we see them, they're going to look like these little Nerf balls with spikes on. You're going to, I was afraid of that. That's the thing you gave me all those nightmares. That's nothing. That's right. We're all worked up over nothing. Most of Satan's power is illusory. It's illusion. He wants you to think he's powerful. He wants you to think that him and God are equal and opposite. God has no equal. Nobody is as powerful as God. He's a creator of the universe. He created Lucifer. He created all of the angels, fallen and unfallen. Ultimately, they serve his purposes. But don't ever think that God and Satan are opposite. They are not. Nobody is as perfectly bad as God is perfectly good. Nobody is as unholy as God is holy. There, he has no opposite. Satan is no contender, though he wants you to think that he has more power than he does. It's illusory. It's a sleight of hand. It's a snake in a tree talking to a woman in the Garden of Eden trying to convince her to do evil. He has no power over you. You have power over all of the forces of darkness, and Jesus died to give us that power. Jesus said, the things you've seen me doing, you'll do greater than that. Jesus wants to empower his people to do his will and work these, these last days. And so it says, verse 27, all of the people were absolutely amazed. And they said to each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he gives orders even to evil spirits, and they obey him. They were scared to death of demons, just like Satan wanted them to be. Jesus came showing that he has authority, and he has passed on that authority to his children, his church, us. We have the power to deal with unclean spirits. We have the power to say no to sin. We have the power to be overcomers. We are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, Paul says. News about him, that is Jesus, spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. We'll leave it off there at verse 28. Read ahead, please. I will do my level best to anticipate your questions, but Mark is a gospel that moves quickly. If you don't keep up, you're going to be left behind. So feel free to read ahead, sit and soak on it a while. If you have any questions or any thoughts or things that you'd like me to bring up next Sunday, you just leave it on the church answer machine or, or uh, Tracy will leave me a note on it. Because of health issues in my family, we, there's a lot of coming and going these days. That's fine. We'll get back with you, and I'll answer those questions for you next week. But know this if you don't know anything else. God loves you.
Why? I don't know. Aren't you glad he does, though? Huh? You glad he does? I'm grateful for his love, his grace, his mercy. He's never treated me according to his sins. He's got a plan for each one of us in this life, and that plan is discovered one day at a time. You just have to do the work of preparation. Be in the Word of God. Be in prayer. Surround yourself with praise and worship in the car or at home. Have it play in some way, shape, or form or another. Why? Because you're a child of God. That's why. And all we're supposed to do these last days is act like it. That's all you have to do. Did, pups, was that enough of a segue into the song that you're going to do? I'm a child of God. Let's stand and close in prayer as the band makes their way up here, shall we? I love the guy.